Amen. You know, um, probably within here this morning, uh, many of us, we, we come from different church traditions and backgrounds um, of varying types. But I just want to make clear, just in case maybe there's some that don't understand why we would sing about what we just sang about, where we said, thank you for breaking the bread of your body and spilling the wine of your blood. Um, you know, in a couple weeks here as a church at Mercy Hill, we'll, we'll take communion together uh, and we will literally break bread and pour out some, some juice. And there's nothing special of those things in and of themselves, but what those things represent is of the utmost importance. Is that whether you realize it this morning or not, your only hope, your only hope was Jesus Christ the God-man came to earth, born of a virgin, and he hung on a cross, on a tree, as the Bible sometimes puts it, and he received the punishment that you and I deserved. And you have no other hope. And um, I want we're going to get to our text here this morning in just a second, um, and the text is going to show the, the, the great importance of that and what Christ did. But I just wanted to, I don't know, I just felt like I just needed to say that because you might be here this morning like, why are we singing about, because brother or sister, that's all we have. That's all we have. When I stand before a holy God someday, as each and every single one of us will do, in that moment, I promise you, I'm not going to point to the fact that I was a pastor or tried to live a good Christian life. My only hope, your only hope, the hope that unites us is that we had Jesus Christ bloodied, hanging on a tree, but he did not stay dead, amen? He rose again on the third day. And if you put your faith and trust in him, the Bible says you are united to him. And because we've died with him, being united with him by faith, when we die, we too will be raised with him. Because he also was raised and his sacrifice was enough. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. We thank you that we get to stand here and we get to sing those words with conviction. We thank you that you've called us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you did everything that needed to be done and everything that we could not do for ourselves that is live, live a life that was pleasing to the Father. And so we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your forgiveness. We thank you, almighty God, that you are both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that your shed blood is enough. We pray that in the time that we have together this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be actively at work to mold us and to shape us into the image of Christ. If there is anyone here that does not know you as their Savior, anyone who right now in this moment is not in Christ, I pray that a miracle would happen today by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. 
Good morning, good to see you guys. Uh, for those of you that have been around Mercy Hill for a while, you know that two times a year we are over in this side of this uh, big complex here uh, because there is a marriage conference, uh, which is an awesome thing, going on over there uh, today. And there will also be one, I, I believe, in about a month or so where we will be over here again. Um, I always try to console all our balcony people. Where are my regular balcony people at? No balcony this morning. We will get through it together, okay? We will get through it together. I know the balcony people love the balcony. It's a, it's a thing. Um, Romans chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 17 through 29 this morning. Please grab your Bibles and go there. Let me read it just to help us familiarize ourselves with it, and then we will get into it. To it. Um, for those of you that may be visiting, what we're doing as a church this year in 2023, Lord willing, is... Sunday to Sunday, we're just walking through the book of Romans a section at a time, and we will spend the majority of 2023 uh, doing that, um, and hopefully growing in Christ-likeness as we go along. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 says, But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself, while you preach against stealing do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and, circ and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Would you just pray with me briefly one more time? Heavenly Father, thanks for today. As always, we... Uh, ask that you would open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So for those of you that know me, um, you might know this about me. I'm not a great detail guy. Um, big picture things, pretty good. When it comes to the text of scripture, I try to be a detail guy. I mean, I, I like the word of God, but I'm more talking details like when it comes to doing anything with my hands, or maybe more specifically with my fat fingers. Um, putting together anything from Ikea, just despise it. All the little pieces, terrible. Um, I don't understand. My wife and two of my boys are very good artists, um, and sometimes I'll see them draw things, and I'm like, I'm once again like inspired to try. And I'm like, I, I think I can do that. And, I, and just something between here, what's in my mind, and here, it just doesn't, just doesn't work. Even my stick figures are horrible. They're absolutely horrible. Um, it also plays into, uh, many of you guys know I used to have a roofing business. And roofing is 
pretty mindless. You nail down shingles again and again and again or screw some metal in. Um, but every now and then during the, during the winter months when we couldn't be on the roof, we would get into some inside construction and doing some different things. And, and when it came to like trim carpentry or more detailed stuff like that, I was just, I was not your guy. But, but, when we, it came to remodeling, there was one thing that I loved, and that was demolition. Anybody? And so, and in fact, one, one time we were, we were working at this place um, down in southern Ohio. We were down there for several months and for some winter work, and uh, it was a part of it. We were building a big addition, but it, there was also an older building that had built in like, been built in like the 1800s. And, uh, and there, was this, there were several rooms that were filled, um, if you guys are familiar with some like, old houses and the way they were built, it was built it was, they were lined with this old plaster, right? So this was the day before drywall, and so there was like double brick wall, and then there were these wood slats, and then they would put this plaster over top of it, and actually had like little like horse hair and stuff in it that like hold it together. Well, anyway, so, so um, some of the other guys one time, they, they, they knew that I wasn't the best with the details, and so they're like, Eric, we're going we're gonna to send you in, in here to to take care of this. And man, I, I went to town. I grabbed, I had, I had a sledgehammer at one point, was just wailing and letting it fly. And uh, at another time, I tried a different technique and had a hammer in each hand and was just, just pounding this stuff and just, and just breaking, it, breaking it off the wall. Um, and the guys came back in and they were, they were quite impressed with how much I'd gotten done because usually I'm not that fast actually building things. <laughs> um, but uh, demolition, that was, that was my thing. And I say all that, because there is a part of gospel ministry that is true not just for pastors and preachers and teachers, but really for any, any of us, where God calls us to do demolition. He calls us to tear down before we can build up. Um, in the call of the prophet Jeremiah, as part of his call in Jeremiah 1.10, God said to him, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And he says this, listen, to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow, and then he says to build and to plant. Now in all this description of what he was calling Jeremiah to do, um, there's six of them. Four of those things are, 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 are demolition or are tearing down, in a sense, and only two are positive. And I say that because a large part of ministry is, is tearing down what's untrue so that we can apply and build what is true. And in the same way, in this passage in Romans of most of the latter half of chapter one, all the way through through chapter uh, halfway through chapter three, what we have is Paul standing up with sledgehammer in hand, uh, so to speak, and after briefly introducing himself at the beginning of Romans chapter one, one he stands up to speak like Jeremiah or like one of these prophets of old, and in this section of the letter, he is calling all of humanity to account for their sin. And he begins by speaking of the fountainhead of sin that we looked at back in Romans chapter 1. And this fountainhead springs forth from men's hearts, which is not at first outward acts of debauchery, as we talked about a few weeks ago, but rather it is man's suppression of the truth and not giving God the honor and the thanksgiving that he rightly deserves. And this root of sin stirs the active wrath of God against our rebellion and leads to greater and greater manifestations of outward sin because God's judgment is to give them over to it. Or as C.S. Lewis put it one time, he says, those who don't acknowledge God and suppress the knowledge of the truth, he said, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. 
But as Paul draws chapter 1 to a close, you, he, he kind of anticipates these arguments from men who, as he's describing the sins listed at the end of chapter 1, who are standing there and saying, yeah, that's right, Paul. That's right, Paul. Tell those people, tell those people how bad they are. But Paul quickly turns the tables on them and tells them that they too are guilty because they have put themselves in the place of God as a judge and because they themselves practice the very same things, although perhaps with less brazenness and open rebellion. And so while Paul has now effectively shown the guilt of the pagan and also of the moral person or anyone who judges, whether it be Jew or Gentile, he knows that there's still another group of people that think they are immune from his diagnosis of sin against a holy God and who have no need for this glorious offer of the righteousness of God that can only be found in the gospel. And Paul knows this group described in the the passage that we just read a little bit ago. He knows this group better than any other group because it is to this group to whom he once belonged, and that is the Jews. And perhaps maybe even not just the Jew, but the Jew who loved to call themselves the Jew, as we read in verse 17. Those who love to call themselves teachers of children and instructors of the foolish. Paul knows this group is still clinging to a form of self-righteousness just as he had once done. And he knows that if that self-righteousness is not demolished, if it is not destroyed, then true Christ righteousness cannot be applied. And so even though Paul stands in this passage and in this entire section of Romans with sledgehammer in hand and he wields it with passion, he ultimately wields it also in love because he wants to tear down any self-righteousness so that Christ righteousness can be applied. And so it's important that we understand the context of what's going on here. Yes, Paul is speaking specifically in the context to Jews, but for us here this morning, I need to say this right from the outset. While that's the context of the passage and who he's speaking to, the, the parallels and the points of application for us here this morning are both abundant and very, very pointed. And so please do not think for a second that as, as we read this, you're like, okay, well, Eric, he's talking to Jews. What does this really have to do, with, do uh, with me? It has a lot to do with you and with me and with us. And again, all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching correction, rebuking, and exhortation. Um, and uh, it's going to it's gonna hit us this morning, I think. And so I, I say all that trying to give a fair warning from the outset here this morning that what we're going to look at in this passage is, is Paul standing up, and, and again, if I can go back to that, to that imagery of the sledgehammer, um, I want to just go through the passage and point out kind of five blows from the hammer uh, that Paul gives against the superficial assurance, the superficial assurance of religious righteousness against the superficial assurance of religious righteousness, which was true for the Jew and is also true in different ways for you and I this morning and especially in the area that we have grown up. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he, he starts off here, and the first hammer below, I'll frame it like this, is that privilege is not the same as approval. Privilege is not the same as approval. 
He says here in verses uh, 17 through 20, he rattles off several things, uh, eight or more, depending kind of how you count them. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and this is kind of the first one here, and Paul's going to come back around at the end, and, and there's, there's some important uh, kind of nuance and subtlety to what Paul is saying here. He says that if you call yourself a Jew, and, not, and the idea here isn't just that they called themselves that, but they love to call themselves that. Um, one of the things I love about preaching is that every week as I get to study the Word of God and in preparation for sharing it with you here on Sunday mornings is that I'm always learning something new week to week. And this is one of those things that I, I, I guess I thought I knew, but I didn't actually know, or I guess I never really thought about. But do you know where the word Jew comes from? The actual word Jew? Anybody? The word Jew is a derivative of um, the word Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes. And the word Judah means praise or praised. And so um, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was the fourth-born son of Leah and when uh, uh, one of Jacob's wives. And when Leah had Judah, she came out, um, she said that she praised the Lord. Okay, she said, now I will praise the Lord. And so she called his name Judah, which means praised. Also Jacob, uh, Judah's father, when he lie dying, he gave this prophecy and he said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Again, in accordance with his name, because ultimately Jesus was going to come from the lineage and from the tribe of Judah. And so to call yourself a Jew, what, the point here being is that in calling themselves Jews, they, they liked that because they were boasting that they knew the right way to worship God. And on one level, they did because God had given them the commandments, as we'll go on and we'll see here. He says, but if you love to call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. Again, if you guys know the story of the history of Israel, God brings them out of Egypt. He comes to Mount Sinai. He says, I have delivered you. I brought you out on eagle wings. It wasn't by anything that you did. It was because of the blood of the lamb. That's it. The wrath of God passed over the lamb, and if the blood of the lamb was not over your doorposts, you, the firstborn son in your home would die. Because God is holy, and we are sinful, and it's only the blood that saves us, as I, as I shared a little bit earlier and as we sang about earlier. But he brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, all by grace, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law, which is good. The law is holy and righteous and good. It is good. That we honor the commandments to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have no other, other gods before him. It is good that we don't murder, that we don't steal, that we don't covet, that we don't commit adultery, that we don't lie, that we obey our parents. Those are good laws. So many times, and I just want to sit here for just a second, because in modern-day Christianity, as soon as we begin to talk about the law, we immediately think legalism. Now, legalism is something that Paul was hammering against here and that I also want to hammer against this morning. Legalism is this idea that we think we can do something to earn God's approval in and of ourselves, or to somehow have some sort of right standing with God because of our, our own righteousness. And that's not true. It's by faith in the sacrifice of the, the blood of the Lamb, as we've talked about. But his law, his commandments in and of themselves, they're holy and righteous and good. And he calls us to walk in these things. And they had the privilege, the Jews had the privilege of out of all the nations of the whole world, they had the privilege of being given this law. Yet they mistook that privilege for automatic approval. Because they didn't seek to obey those commands and to love God and to follow him. Even though he had delivered them from slavery. 
Not only, is not only is privilege not the same as approval, but secondly, and this goes right along with it, just slightly different, knowledge is not the same as obedience. Knowledge is not the same as obedience. Knowledge is given to lead us to obedience, but knowledge is not the same as obedience. He, Paul goes on here, and again, just follow the, the, the flow of thought. And again, I, um, if you hear, if you've been following kind of the, the flow here, and knowing Paul's background that he too wants to be, wants to use be a zealous Jew and a, and a Pharisee, and we'll talk more about that later, you can tell this section of his letter, he's very passionate. Um, Paul is standing up here and he's just using fluent rhetoric to just hammer away, like you can almost like hear him preaching, I guess, as he's, as he's writing these things. Verse 20 says, if you count yourself an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, in other words, oh, we would never worship idols, but we might rob things from temples because we love gold because they're worth money. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Knowledge is not the same as obedience. Privilege is not the same as approval. And let's just pause for just a second, and again, <coughs> it's important that we stay tethered to the context, and he is speaking to Jews, but, and I don't know if anyone in here has a Jewish background this morning, you know, again, this, Paul's writing this, directly to you, I, I don't know. But can we just talk about Holmes County for a second? We have all sorts of rules. Sometimes unspoken rules. Rules that maybe they're not written on tablets of stone or Ten Commandments. But they're rules that, well, God loves you and you're saved by grace, but you better do this. And if you don't, then it's questionable about whether or not he actually does, does love you. And like I said earlier, the parallels are, the parallels are abundant, and I think they're pointed on one level. I want to be fair, um, because sometimes it's innocent. You know, sometimes the question, and I've poked at this before, but I think you guys have to agree that sometimes there's nothing to it, but sometimes there is. Who's your mom? Who's your dad? Who's your grandpa? Who's your grandma? Sometimes innocent, absolutely, but sometimes not. Because we think that there's an inherent righteousness to growing up, and if your last name's not Miller, Yoder, or Weaver, I don't know, Troyer, what? okay, there's a few more, but you, you get the idea that, well, I'm not sure if I can really trust you or not, or not sure if, you know, you'd be a good person to hire for our company because, you know, we like to keep it local, so to speak. Um, there's all sorts of rules, and, and many of them, they started with the Bible, but then we just kind of add to them. We make the same mistake as the Jews made. 
God gave some laws, and his laws are holy, righteous, and good, right? But the mistake they made was, well, if some laws are good, then more laws are better. Not true. And so we think, well, yeah, it's by grace through faith, and yeah, you got to accept Jesus, but you got to dress a certain way. you got to wear certain things. You can maybe only drive certain things. Um, you need to belong to this type of church. Um, are you following me? Somebody say amen. I'm not going to sit here and go through the list of all the unspoken things. I was just trying to get the ball rolling, and that's all you need to do is you shove it down the hill. That ball will roll for a while, <laughs> right? And so let me just stop here, and again, we'll kind of come in and out of this as we, as we go through it, because we're only kind of two hammer blows in from Paul here in tearing down what needs to be torn down. But brother and sister, and again, I know many of us know this, but I'm saying even for myself, you've, we've got to be reminded of it constantly. We have no righteousness except the righteousness of Christ. That's it. And theology matters. Theology needs to be applied correctly. And the way you apply it correctly is that what we talked about back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that if the, the righteousness of God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, then I'm sorry, and this is where the offense of the gospel comes in, your rules don't mean jack. They don't. And yes, that's offensive to us because but I've, I've spent all this time keeping the rules. Surely it must mean something. No, it doesn't. It does not. And I'll take you to the mat on this. The Bible will take you to the mat on this. Paul will take you to the mat on this. Because if you think that you can add to the righteousness of Christ, what you're doing is minimizing the sacrifice of Christ and the righteousness that he provided. And the Jews got this wrong, and we get it wrong, although be it the applications are slightly different. And I want it to be known adamantly again and again and again. Again, you have, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, it's like, Eric, we've heard you say this a thousand times. Well, you're going to hear me say it a thousand and one times and a thousand more times to stay here. And that is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the alones matter. That's not just a tag on. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was enough and it robs men of boasting. See, here's the deal, is that behind any sort of religious exterior righteousness, ceremonial righteousness, whatever you want to plug in there, whether it's Jewish or whether it's modern day, and again, just of, of different traditions, again, now, and let me be fair here, um, could I spend time, you know, because, uh, well, let's just shoot. Okay, even though I don't think I said it. You know, I'm poking a little bit at the Amish and at the Mennonite and stuff like that around here, but if our, if our, if our county was lined with Presbyterian churches and the religious righteousness that they put out there, then I would poke at that. But that's not what we've got going on. What we have is an Amish Mennonite heritage that's filled with rules and filled with regulations that strip Jesus of his glory. Because what he did alone is enough to provide salvation for everybody. Um, but it exists in all sorts of different forms. 
I grew up Baptist, and we got, you know, we got plenty of our Baptist rules that are garbage as well, too. I just don't have time to <laughs> fight all of them this morning. But anyway, here's the deal. Is that in any sort of exterior, external rule that isn't directly from the word of God, rightly understood within the context of the covenants and of the testaments, um, all it does is promote pride and arrogance, and underneath it, in the heart, is a love of the praise of men. I actually wonder, I don't know for sure, there's no way to prove it, but I actually wonder if, as Paul was writing this section of scripture, if he wasn't, in some ways, exegeting or had open before him the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, where Jesus says some very pointed things to the Jews and especially to the Pharisees of his day. He says, he says this, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and so do and observe what they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not preach, for they preach, but they do not practice. He goes on later in verse five, and he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. He goes later on and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are those? He says, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Later on, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and of self-indulgence. And so, Privilege is not the same as approval. Knowledge is not the same of obedience. And, and Paul begins to transition now to some of these, these inner heart motives, some of these other hammer blows that he brings up. The third one that I would mention is this. He says, when the people of God do not satisfy themselves in God, they dishonor the name of God. Let me say that again. When the people of God do not satisfy themselves in God, they dishonor the name of God. Look at verse 24. So Paul sums up that first section of kind of all those rhetorical questions and things that he's, as he's kind of preaching, so to speak, here. And then he says in verse 24, and, and it's a verse from the, from the Old Testament, maybe not a direct quote, there's probably either one of two places, Isaiah 52, 5, or perhaps Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, but he says this, he says, for as it is written, referring to these Old Testament passages, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And his point here is that God's name ended up being drugged through the mud because while on one level they boasted in being the people of God, they did not follow his ways. They did not walk in his commandments because they would just simply, as Jesus put it again in, in the Gospels, because the same thing was happening when Jesus came, he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. And when the people of God do not satisfy themselves in God, but only want his blessings, only want what he can give, or maybe what calling themselves the people of God can gain them, then it ends up dishonoring the name of God. And, and all that to say, let me say it a different way. Folks, what God, what God has saved us to is himself. Jesus Christ is our treasure. 
He is the pearl of greatest price. He is the treasure buried in the field that's worth selling everything else to get. God himself is to be our delight. And if he's not, we do not magnify the riches of his grace. We magnify the riches and the greatness of other stuff. And it's not about stuff. Again, that's idolatry. That's the same That's the same mistake that uh, the pagans that he mentions in chapter 1 make. But if we call ourselves the people of God, we must delight ourselves in God. In Isaiah chapter 52, which I believe is part of what Paul's quoting here, let me just look at this briefly. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5, it says, Now therefore, what do we have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, and their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And so what was happening was God had been patient and patient and patient and patient with his people and trying to teach them his ways, but they continued to rebel, and eventually God was sending them into exile, which Isaiah and Jeremiah um, uh, and some of the other prophets they speak to and are giving this warning that God's going to send them into exile because they would not delight themselves in God. Um, And then he says this, and continually all the day... My name is despised. And then verse 6, he says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. And then there's this little phrase, yeah, it's up there on the screen. It says, here I am. Now follow me. Let me, let me say it again. Hang with me. Look at, the, look at the text. He says, continually, all the day, my name is despised. But God's like, I'm not going to leave it like that. I'm not going to leave it like that. God says, even though my people have dishonored my name, I'm going to work for the sake of my own glory and for the good of my people, which we don't deserve. But I'm going to work for the sake of my name. My people shall know my name. And then he says this, therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. And then there's just this little phrase, like, what does that mean? Here I am. And what he's speaking about here is this is a prophecy that even though Israel had been God's people and he'd he'd pulled them out, they never walked in his ways. And so what was he going to do? He was going to send his son, Jesus. God in the flesh was going to come one day and he was going to stand and speak for God and as God and say, here I am. And he came, even though the Jews, and even though um, we naturally in and of ourselves today, we do not live for the glory of God, we do not satisfy ourselves in God, Jesus came and he showed us what it looked like to live a life to the glory of God. Jesus lived his entire life with zeal and with passion for the Father's glory. He lived the life that we were called to live, but all of us, as sinners have gone astray and have gone after other things and have not satisfied ourselves in the glory of God, even though there's nothing better than the glory of God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah put it like this. He said, my people have committed two evils. They've left me, the spring of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns which hold no water. Do you understand what that, what that imagery is? It's, it's like, it's like if, you, if, if I offer my kid ice cream, just an ice cream being the pinnacle of all foods, okay? Work with me. Chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Mm. Um, but you offer them chocolate peanut butter ice cream. 
<sighs> no. I'm going to go nibble on this cardboard. Like, what? Like, I would be like, I mean, my kids would never do that, but if that, if that happens, you'd be like, there's something, there's something wrong. There's something not right. I mean, even if you want a different flavor of ice cream, whatever, but, but ice cream or cardboard. And we, we want to nibble on the cardboard. This is the essence of how the Bible speaks about our sin, folks. Is that our hearts, there's something wrong inside of us, which Paul's about to get to here in talking of circumcision of the heart. There's something wrong inside of us. It's not just that we sin outwardly, it's that we are sinners. See, here's the truth of the gospel, and again, I understand it's offensive. If you're not offended by it, then I'm not saying it correctly, and I'll try again to offend you, okay? So, here's the deal, is that the offense of the gospel is this. It's not just that you sin, it's that you're a sinner. It's not just that you do wrong things, but there's something wrong with you. And that is that you love your sin. You love the cardboard rather than the ice cream. You love the things of this world rather than the glory of the one who literally made everything in the world. We've been called to delight ourselves in him, but we don't. See, that reveals a deep, deep brokenness of something that's going on deep inside of here. This is why when it comes to change and just outward things and self-help and all the stuff that we gobble up, even in the church at times, of just ways to change, it ignores the heart. We end up making little of the glory of God and dishonoring his name. It's because the way that we change is by one way. It is by the power of God is that Jesus Christ came and he was crucified, raised from the dead, as the gospel is preached, and we are called to repent and to believe in him. The Holy Spirit, very God of very God, God himself wants to come into your life like a flood, and he wants to wash away all your sin. He wants to take it away, and he now wants to give you a new heart to live from the inside out, not in your own strength, which we can never do, but in his strength, Brothers and sisters, do you understand what good news this is? Do you understand that this is what we have been called to? Is to live day by day in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. Nothing could be better than this. Nothing could be better than this. And, and if I can say that this is somewhat, maybe, I don't know, of a, of a bold statement, <coughs> but I really think there's something to this is that I'm convinced as I look at my own life and the struggles that I have in my own walk of discipleship and Christian life at time, and I'm, and I'm convinced that as I talk with Christians who are struggling trying to follow Jesus as well too, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that the reason much of our Christianity lacks power and joy and brings very little glory to God is because essentially what happens is we end up reverting back and living under the old precepts of the law. If I could just put that another way, we are all far, 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 far more bent towards legalism than what we think. And what Jesus Christ came to bring is a new creation. The power of the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God himself not just out there somewhere, not just meeting us on Mount Sinai and the mountain was shaking and everything was scary, but in our hearts, giving us new desires to walk in a new life and to love him as he deserves. Only God can do this. Continuing on here, um, 
Again, one more quick one, and then we'll, we'll land with, with another hammer below here that I want to spend some time on. But right along in this same flow of thought, in the next couple of verses, I would just say this, is that outward rituals mean nothing without love for God and others. Outward rituals mean nothing without love for God and others. Look at verse 25. And he's talking about, when I say outward rituals, I'm talking about this, this ritual of circumcision, which was given. Yes, God gave it to the Jews as the sign of the covenant okay, that he had with them. Verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then verse 26, he says, So if a man who is uncircumcised, in other words, uh, 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 not an Israelite or national-born Jew, he says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps, and here's, here's a key phrase, he says, keeps the precepts of the law. The precepts of the law. Now if I could sum that up broadly, again, we could argue over what exactly that means, but I would point to, to several verses. One is where Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and secondly, that we love our neighbor as ourself. And so that's why I said, outward rituals mean nothing without a heart that loves God and loves others. And Paul says here, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, i.e. love for God and others, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he goes on here, follow the flow of thought. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So Paul's saying it's not about this this ceremony or act of circumcision, um, again, given to Jewish men as a sign that they were God's chosen people and that there was going to be one that came from the lineage of the Jews and of Judah, i.e. Jesus, eventually, that was going to be the seed of Abraham, this redeemer of the world, this savior who was going to crush the serpent's head. Um, and so, Paul goes on here, and hang with me here, in verse 28 and 29, he's going to talk about this, this true circumcision. He says, for no one is a Jew merely, and, and that word merely, I want to come back to that, but that, that's just been stuck in me this week as, as, we've, uh, as I've been studying this, because we all settle for merely outward things, and it's worthless. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you've got outward versus inward, physical versus the heart, and the letter versus the spirit. Do you see that? Outward circumcision versus inward circumcision, physical circumcision versus heart circumcision, and circumcision by the letter or by the law because it was commanded, or by the Spirit. And here's kind of the, the last hammer blow that I want to point out, and just to help kind of summarize, um, but this is where Paul has been going the whole time as he's been, as he's been tearing down is that privilege is not the same as approval, knowledge is not the same as obedience, and when people who confess to be God's people but do not actually satisfy themselves in God, they end up bringing dishonor to the name of God. And outward rituals mean nothing without 
a love for God and people. But here's the last truth, and this is the good news, and this is the essence of the gospel, and I really want us to get this. And here it is. And that's this. Only the Spirit of God can create a heart that is pleasing to God. Only the Spirit of God can create a heart that is pleasing to God. That's his point here, is that this circumcision, it's no longer outward, just like so many things of the law. It's not about outward rituals anymore. Outward laws in the old covenant were always to point to inward realities of the heart that are now fulfilled in Christ and brought about and applied by the Spirit. It's not about that anymore. Only the Spirit of God can create a heart that is pleasing to God. And, brothers and sisters, I guess the the burden, I want to say for me, of this whole text, but not just for me, but I think of Paul himself and the point of the passage, is that no one, please hear me, is that no one would settle for merely being a Jew outwardly. Merely being a churchgoer outwardly. Merely being a good Holmes County Christian outwardly. Merely just showing up and mouthing words but having your heart be far from him. If I can be honest, I can't think of anything worse than that. How about rather than pretending that we love him, how about we ask him to change our hearts so that we actually love him? Amen? It's, you're like, is that really true? Oh, it's true. It's true. I can remember where I sat growing up in church week in and week out, but then one day on a Sunday morning about a month after I graduated in July of 2000, where God, and by his grace, um, Hannah, who's my wife now, is my girlfriend at the time, where he laid hold of our hearts. And he began to do something that wasn't fake. It wasn't pretend. Why would you want to pretend? There's going to come a day when you're going to stand before him, and if there's one thing, if you heard Jonas's message from last week, the one thing I loved about, I mean, not the only thing, but one of the things that I loved about Jonas's message was, like, God is the judge. You know, he's not, on that day when you stand before him, he's not going to need to call witnesses. I'm going to need some, I'm going to, I'm going to need to hear some third-party testimony before I know whether or not that's true. He knows everything. He's the author of your life. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He then knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows your thoughts before you think them, Psalm 139. He knows your words before you speak them. He's not going to need any testimony. And if you live a life of pretend, there's going to come a day where, you know, because here's the thing, like, let, let, me, let me give you this. Pretend will work in this life for a while. You can go through the whole thing pretending your whole life, but there's going to come a day when pretend land isn't going to cut it anymore. Because you're going to stand before him 
And either your boast is going to be in Jesus Christ and him crucified and him alone and that he's done a miracle to give you a new heart because you've turned him in faith and repentance. Or he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so, like, this whole idea of, oh, you know, it's kind of a weird illustration, like, circumcision or circumcision of the heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, it might be a little bit foreign to us, I'll give you that, but this matters. Because, uh, let me put it another way, right now, in this moment, everybody in this room and everybody in the world, we can put it in one of two categories. You either have a circumcised heart or you don't. You either are living like like Paul describes in chapter 1, just in open, brazen rebellion, like you say, it's the truth about God. No, I'm not going to honor him. No, I'm not going to give thanks to him. Who's God? You can live that life, or you can live a life of sincerity that truly loves him, or you can live a moralistic, religious life of, of, of several different varieties where you pretend to love him, but you don't actually love him. So all this to say, let me just land the plane here. You, 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 not the person beside you, behind you, in front of you, three rows over, you. Do you have a circumcised heart? And let me, let me say something else. Maybe there might, because right now as I ask that, you, there might be some that go, Eric, I'm not sure. I've grown up in church my whole life, I know that. And I know a lot of what you're saying this morning, I've heard that my whole life too. Let me ask it another way. Do you love him? Do you actually love Jesus? And again, I, I, let me address another argument. Yeah, but none of us loves him perfectly. Nobody's arguing that. We won't love him perfectly till we get to glory. I'm not arguing, I'm not asking, do you love him perfectly? I'm saying, do you love him sincerely? Or it's not Pretend. And if you don't, it's okay. None of us are born with a circumcised heart that loves God, that none of us are born with the Spirit of God in us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to die, and if we just simply accept by faith what he did for us, and that he died the death that we deserved, And he who knew no sin, God made sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin, we get all of his righteousness. If you will just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the Holy Spirit wants to come into you, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, as a seal, as a deposit, as a guarantee of our inheritance until um, he comes back to get us. And then you don't need to live a religious life where you're just doing your absolutely white-knuckled best to hang on and to follow the rules. Because you've got a helper, not just with you now, but in you who wants to come in and who wants to walk with you in every single moment, everything that you could possibly face. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close.
Don't settle for merely, folks. Don't settle for merely. One of the most glorious things in all of the world is that Jesus came to die for those who are described in chapter 1 that we might say are far from him. And he also came to die for the religious lost, those that appear to be near to him but are not. If you guys remember the story of the prodigal son, it's called the story of the prodigal son, but if you remember, there were two brothers, right? There were actually two brothers. One of them was far from God, living like a pagan. Could probably be described with some of the things that we read about at the end of chapter 1. Total outward debauchery. And he came home. And the father threw his arms around him, ran to him, and brought him into the family. But there was another son. There was another son who'd been in the father's house the whole time. But even though he was in the father's house, he didn't understand the father's heart. And that story of the prodigal son, this gets missed so often because all the focus is on the younger son. The father goes out and the story ends with the father outside pleading with the older brother to come on in. Come into the house. There's a party going on. Your brother is home. The fatted calf has been killed. There's singing and there's music and there's dancing. And the older brother, that religious brother, he says, oh my, oh my life, I've served you. I've served you. There's this, folks, uh, outward re- religion, superficial religiosity, it breeds this deep anger and frustration at God because we think that he owes us. Men and women, we do not put God in our debt. He owes you nothing. He is good all the time. The next breath that you take is from him. But he offers you a life of grace and to come in and to stop pretending. And I pray that this morning as we stand and as we sing and even right now as I pray for you, I pray that if you relate to that older brother in any way, I pray that you do that. Don't settle for merely outward performance and false assurance. Father, in Jesus' name, we just come before you this morning and we thank you for saving us. Lord, I want to thank you for saving me. I, 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 Lord, you know, I wasn't even planning on sharing any part of my testimony this morning, but I just, it just struck my heart as we we're going through this. Thank you. And Lord, the truth is, Lord, many of us are both. Lord, we've Many of us, we, I, I've you know, lived at times like in total pagan debauchery, but at other times, Lord, I've lived a life of like the older brother, a false outward religion that's superficial. And I thank you that you're able to save. Lord, I also want to pray for us as a church. I, I, Lord, as we talk about the circumcision of the heart that is done by the Holy Spirit, Lord, I just want to pray for us as a church. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would not just mouth words. I pray that when we stand and sing, and not just when we stand and sing, but every moment of every day that we would live lives that are holy and acceptable to you, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit, that we would be those worshipers that the Father seeks who worship him in spirit and in truth. I pray that this wouldn't be a game. I pray it wouldn't be a performance. 
I pray that our lives would truly bring honor and glory to you because our testimony now until we die is that we have Jesus Christ alone and him crucified, but it's enough. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would blow among us in a fresh way. Lord, how we need the power of your Holy Spirit alone. Lord, what else can tear down the strongholds of man-made religion and self-righteousness that, that, that are here in our area? We need a, the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, we don't know what to do other than to call upon you. We call upon the name of Jesus right now to send a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit to blow away all the, the garbage, all the straw, all the shaft, all the pretendness of man-made religion. We want the real thing. Jesus, I thank you that you've called us to the real thing. That you've not called us to something fake or to pretend or to just perform, but that you've called us to you to taste your glory, to be satisfied in who you are. Father, thank you for today. And Lord, as we stand and as we sing, I pray that many would be here this morning that could stand and sing with new hearts. And the Lord, for I myself too, even though I, I, you saved me a little over 20 years ago, I pray that I too could stand this morning and sing with a new heart that's been freshly touched by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you so much, Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.